Well, good morning and welcome to all of you joining us. Uh, we're here in London and we're here to talk with a, a regular really these days on FS Club, Maury Schenk. Maury has spoken before for us on a number of topics, uh, quantum computing and others, but he's here today to talk about some of the research which he's turning into practical applications. And the title of today's talk is How We Talk About How We Work. And Maury's going to look at the emerging landscape of skills, taxonomies, and how AI is improving them. Now, this might seem like an esoteric subject, but it's one that definitely interests me. And when I heard what Maury was up to, I asked him if he'd come and give us an update on where he stands and what they're doing. Now, you know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zen, and I can only do so many webinars with you uh, and the other chairman because FS Club sponsors allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today's subject, which sounds, as I said, somewhat odd, somewhat esoteric, on the idea of skills taxonomies in AI is one I think we're going to see increasingly and one that all members of FS Club will be encountering more and more over the next uh, few years. Now, the agenda for today is, as ever, uh, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from Maury, our expert. Uh, Maury will be speaking for about 20 minutes um, but Maury is really keen, as am I, frankly, on some questions and answers. Uh, so really three items, if I may. The first is all of the uh, questions and answers that you send will be sent on to Maury with uh, an email attached. So if you've got any points of detail or you just like to contact Maury, simply slip it into the Q&A facility and we'll get to him. Please do use the GoToWebinar question and answer facility because I'm here with you. I'm not on Signal or WhatsApp or, or taking emails. So please feed them in and I will feed those into the discussion that we have with Maury uh, during the second half. Yes, the slides are posted and yes, this is being recorded and it will be up in approximately two working days, so probably uh, Thursday afternoon. Well, that's me out of the way. Uh, Maury, this is really kind of interesting. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, this topic is particularly close to my heart. Um, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to just say if everybody will hear me say click to make this to drive the slides because I have some animated slides which so click. So just to tell you briefly about LearnerShape, uh, it's it's a company I founded that's doing a lot of this work. Um, the question we ask is what if we could use a variety of AI to provide a portable representation of every individual to inform their lifetime learning journey. So think of AI being able to create a mathematical representation of lots of things out there in the real world. Can we do that uh, about individuals from a skills perspective um, and, and help them make education decisions? That's a really big mission. We focus down in terms of what we're doing as a business. Click. So in terms of a business, we've looked at this problem. As Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum has said, we stand on the brink of a technological revolution that's going to alter the way we live. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, will this technological revolution take jobs at the moment? After the pandemic, we seem to have a shortage of, of workers. Uh, but what it really is going to produce is change. Click. And the change is going to produce skill gaps. Uh, so, uh, the shortage of workers in some areas that we see is not unexpected. Most executives 
expect to see skill gaps. Most executives expect disruption of their workforce. And there's a huge economic opportunity from, from, this, uh, from this transition, from getting it right versus not getting it right. Click. So, so we have a, a first poll here. Um, is, is the audience seeing this problem? Do, what percentage of jobs in your company do you expect to change significantly in the next decade? That's a fascinating question, Maury. We've got, uh, as ever you can imagine, the FS Club members are fairly opinionated uh, and about 40% have voted in the first 10 seconds. I'm going to leave the poll open for another few seconds so we get up uh, slightly more than half the audience. Great. Almost there. It is a really uh, interesting one because we, uh, of course, know Carl Benedict Fry, who started a piece of research some seven or eight years ago at Oxford that predicted wholesale change of something like 48% of jobs. Anyway, we've got uh, three quarters of the audience have voted. We'll just present the results now. And as you can see, uh, percentage of jobs that people expect to change is quite significant, somewhere between uh, 10 and 50, with uh, still quite a few there in the 50 to 75%, and 25% at more than 75%. So we're really looking at a prediction of widespread change. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Almost nobody thinks that um, that nothing's going to change uh, or that the change is going to be small. So to the topic of the presentation, skills taxonomies. A, a skills taxonomy is a way that you can describe what skills people have. And skills can mean a lot of different things. It can mean you know, something that you know, something that you're able to do. It can mean an aptitude that you have to learn things. We'll get into uh, some of the details of how this descri is described, but these are useful for a number of purposes. Uh, these, these three on the right are big baskets. Hiring, when you hire somebody, you need to know what skills they have. With the job change we're talking about, reskilling is another big one. We, to know what skills we're targeting and to get people from point A to point B, that's important. And workforce mobility, which is related to reskilling, um, except that you might not need to do reskilling. You might just have a changing job and you might find that people within your organization are the right people for this new job, but you have to be able to recognize adjacency of skills to do that. As Michael pointed out to me in our uh, prior to, uh, description, that last task of figuring out where your holes are is a really key business function. Click. So there are lots of skills taxonomies that, were, that uh, undertake to do this. The big player is called ONET. It was launched in 1997 uh, to replace it, the venerable US Department of Labor Dictionary of Occupational Titles. It's focused on the U.S. labor market, but it's been used quite a lot globally. So a lot, it's, it's almost certainly the most common source of job definitions for studies of job mobility, uh, loss of jobs, et cetera. Uh, Eric Brynjolfsson um, of MIT and Stanford did a big study on that, on job mobility that used ONET as the basis for it. And it has a complex content model that categorizes skills into skills, tasks, knowledge, work styles, 
uh, goes across six categories. As I said, it's widely used for research. You've got a link to it there where you can find it. Another big one is ESCO in, in, EU, in the EU, this is the big one. It's been developed since 2010 by the European Commission. It's in 27 languages um, and it defines skills and competences, which it treats as a bit different from skills, qualifications and occupations. I'm not gonna go into the definitions of what each of those are, but it's complex and complexity is a theme here. Uh, and skills are further divided. You have a link for that. Click. So we're a financial services group here uh, listening. It's the Financial Services Club. There are not, interestingly, uh, that many taxonomies for financial services, at least compared to technology. Not surprisingly, we see uh, technology is an area where there are more developed um, more developed taxonomies, which I'll talk about a couple of them here. Financial services is an opportunity, by the way. We have uh, one VC, uh, FinTech VC who's interested in us as an investor because they see a big opportunity to improve this area in financial services. But a couple of tax, uh, technology taxonomies here, um, SFIA, Skills for the Information Age. It defines seven levels of responsibilities. It's focused on IT. It's uh, not free like some of the others. Uh, it's free for some purposes, but if you want to use it commercially, you got to pay. The European e-competence framework is free. It's been also developed by EU organizations. It feeds into ESCO, which I mentioned on the previous slide. It's uh, for ICT, ICT professionals, and it's based around 41 competences and five proficiency levels. Yet another way of measuring these things. Click. And a few new players in the market. So the World Economic Forum, they're big in the future of workspace. Uh, they announced that in January of this year that they are building their own taxonomy. There's a couple of big players behind it. Uh, they say that it synthesizes and builds on existing taxonomies. Uh, Nesta, which is uh, a UK research organization, government funded largely, uh, released in 2018, a UK skills taxonomy. This was influential in our initial research, which I'll talk about it in a moment. Um, LinkedIn, probably the biggest, well, the biggest player in finding jobs at the moment. They have a skills graph. It's proprietary uh, for LinkedIn users, uh, but they're considering broader access. So there are lots of these skill taxonomies. Click. So are you confused? I'm confused. Um, I, I'm operating in this space and I'm really, really confused. And the more time I spend on these things, the more confused I get. This isn't to say that these skills taxonomies aren't useful. If you can live within a taxonomy, like Eric Brynjolfsson's research using ONET, you can do all right. But if you've got to operate across them or put them into practice in the uh, ebb and flow of daily life, it's complicated. Click. So this is an example of why it could be confusing. This chap says, you know, I'm a data scientist with four years of experience in, in NLP, especially burden under other semi-supervised learning techniques. This is somebody who I'd want to, who has skills that are super relevant to LearnerShape. Um, and I'd want to hire somebody like that. Click. Here's the same guy though. He could try to describe it with the SFIA taxonomy and he'll need to say something like, 
I have SFI skills in data modeling and design at level five, programming and software development at level five, and software design at level four, which isn't bad. And if you look up those SFIA scores, they're uh, the, the descriptions, they're pretty, you know, pretty uh, detailed. And so you could figure out what this guy knows, but as a human, it's not as easy to parse what he does. And my view is it would be better if we can talk about these things as humans. And, and that's where I think AI can help. Click. So second poll, skills taxonomies is a somewhat esoteric topic. As Michael said, we're gonna see more of it. I'm curious whether people are encountering skills taxonomies themselves. Okay, so we've got uh, the polls in progress. Half the audience have voted. I'm just going to leave it open a few more seconds, Maury. It's great. Okay, we'll just sort of close that down. And basically, it's fairly straightforward. Two thirds, no, they're not encountering it. One third, yes. Yeah, well, and this isn't terribly surprising. If um, I assume that this, that people here are not. Uh, mostly from HR departments, but people from HR departments know this, and very few other people do. And um, because it's confusing, and you know, maybe it's the people at HR departments who are going to continue to use this. Uh, we got to make it better for them, but it can also be much more broadly useful if we can improve this. So, moving to the second part of the presentation is how can machine learning AI make this better? So. We started thinking about job market data, the Nesta taxonomy um, that I referred to a couple slides ago, started with a research paper by uh, a couple of people at, at Nesta. Um, their head of data is so a woman called uh, Gildas Jumalieva, um, nice woman who you should look up if you're interested in the space. But it's a really, it's a paper to try to extract a skills taxonomy from job market data. And, um, and they came up with the skills taxonomy that way, but it's not, a, it's complicated and it's still a taxonomy. It's still one fixed taxonomy. And we started to, early in LearnerShape, we looked at this and we thought, well, proximity of skills and job market data is a good way to say relatedness of skills. But at the time, the, the big advances, there were big advances in NLP that were coming out. And we thought, what about just proximity in the language? And let me say what I mean by that, click. Some of you may be familiar with the concept of word embeddings, or even if you're not, what do you think the, uh, what would you say belongs on the other side of this equation? People can put it in the chat. Let's see if we get any answers. Yeah, please do feel free to stick stuff in the chat and I'll pull that forward, but off you go, Maury. All right, well, no answer, uh, click. The, the standard answer to this is queen. Um, and the reason for that, click, is that word embeddings, which are a way to represent words in a vector space, um, in that vector space, the distance between, the distance and direction from king to queen is, this is very similar to the different, the distance and direction from man to woman, uh, as one might expect. And so you can do mathematics on that. Uh, and word embeddings, uh, you could do the same with skills if skills were one word. 
but there are much more powerful tools to do this that are now becoming available. Click. Those tools are called large pre-trained language models. Uh, Stanford University has just started, coined a new term called foundation models, and they set up a whole center to study foundation models. Um, and the, the first, these started to appear, um, well, there was an architecture called the transformer architecture, which is illustrated there on the left, which appeared in 1997. Uh, and uh, it, it uses something called attention, which I will, I don't have time to explain today. The first big model was the BERT model released in 2018. You may have heard about some of the others like GPT-3, which is great at producing human readable text from a prompt. Uh, it does amazingly accurate stuff sometimes and pure nonsense a lot of the other times. And so it's not very useful for production work, but it's really kind of impressive in news articles. And, and, and look, BERT, BERT does lots of useful stuff if you apply it in a, dis uh, sorry, GPT-3 does lots of useful stuff if you apply it in a disciplined way. But we're on the way of making very sophisticated connections in language. So we can use these models to say what the relationships between skills are. For example, to, uh, for example, to say a skill is data science. Uh, and maybe we could include, we could couple data science with a description of what data science is about. And the model looks at that and can then look at a, a group of, well, we have, for example, a library of 70,000 pieces of content. And it could look at those 70,000 pieces of content and see, say, which of them are about data science. Uh, it could say which jobs are close together, if you could describe those jobs in terms of skills. And you can do it in human language, so you could anybody can come up with any skills, uh, can come up with their own skills taxonomy if this is properly implemented. Click. The, but it, it can't, uh, there are tools beyond just the words and these, um, and these uh, large language models. The other big tools we're using uh, are graphs. The word libraries, is kind could be a skill, but it's not one skill. Library can mean a lot of things. Click. So, for example, this is a uh, a, a graph. It's a what's called a directive acyclic graph of some skills. The root is sort of the root of all knowledge, and then you break it down. Click, and and libraries appears several places in here. It's uh, programming libraries, library science like knowing how to organize libraries and architecture. There are some architects who are specialists at building libraries because they're kind of, they got a lot of weight in them. You need really strong walls if you build a library and strong floors. These are completely different, but when you organize, this graph has a lot of knowledge in it itself. So our AI looks both at the words and at the graph and extracts meaning from both of them and it can develop relationship between skills. Click. So what we've done is we put some, uh, a lot of this tech, uh, another principle of ours is that this has to be open source because it's gonna catch on if everybody can use it according to standard uh, protocols. And we're early in that game, but we put a bunch of that uh, in an open source library, which is at, uh, at this link and you can go check it out and you can use it. It's available under a fairly permissive license which basically says 
uh, you can do anything you want with it as long as you attribute it to us and as long as you don't uh, break it into little pieces, uh, change it and not contribute it back. Um, you can break it into little pieces and change it as long as you contribute it back to the public domain. So, and you can use it as a whole. And, and some of the things it does are described here about creation of skills and graphs, managing learning resources, managing, um, recommending jobs and workforces. And we're constantly adding to this. We learned last week, we're kind of excited that we've been funded by Cardano, who's one of the big blockchain companies to develop a protocol for universal authentication of individual skills on using their, um, using their authentication technology, which is called Italoprism. We're working with the British Standards Institution. Uh, we're working for the Institute of Ethical AI at Oxford Brookes University. So um, we're in early days, but we've got a real vision that we think that we can keep building this open source, um, this op the open source libraries that are available to do this. And meanwhile, we can make some money because we people will pay us to create applications based upon what we're building. Click. I'd just like to say a, a, a word that we're not by far the only people who are headed in this direction of flexible skills. Uh, the one that I admire the most is a company called EdCast. Uh, they're what's called a learning experience platform. Um, they have just recently in the last few months released uh, something called Skills DNA. And this has a lot of the pieces, a lot of the applications that we think uh, can be done with this kind of flexible skills technology. Um, they do have a skills taxonomy, a fixed one. It's got 15,000 skills in it and five and a half thousand roles, but it's more extensible because of the AI capabilities. They have AI mappings across functions. Um, they are not open source. We think they'll stay proprietary. So they're taking a rather different approach than us. Our, our approach is open source and it's infrastructure, it's modular components that anybody can build. And that's where we think we're distinctive, but there's gonna be lots of other people out there. And if you have a fixed need, uh, you may, it, we're not for everybody. We're for specific applications where people wanna build their very specific skills applications. Uh, for fixed needs, some of these existing platforms uh, may be much better. We think the whole space is gonna continue to really take off and you know, I'm excited to be part of it over the coming years and decades because I think we're at sort of ground zero right now. So that is, that is the end of my, um, my slides, Michael, and you know, happy to, to discuss your questions and take uh, audience questions. Maury, thank you very much for that. <clears throat> it's a tough area to get our heads around, and I hope to explore that a bit in the next 20 minutes. Um, it, you may not know this, but back in 1985, I was doing a research project with British Leyland to build a skills database for them. Uh, interestingly, the existing skills database was uh, had eight levels, surprise, surprise, <laughs> and uh, and it had 128 categories, surprise, surprise. So you can see that we were constrained by code. And I moved it into taking CVs that people had written for themselves and putting it into Steps, which was IBM's uh, free text searching engine at the time. Um, so that was sort of early days of this. And 
later on, uh, we've done a bit here ourselves about eight, nine years ago with a large financial services firm, where again, we took the CVs of people, tried to uh, correlate those with success in the firm, and then try and pick out people who would have similar skills from a new set of CVs with marginal success. But things have moved forward quite significantly, as you point out, Bert, uh, and other transformer techniques uh, seem to be the rage and seems to be doing a much better job. Anyway, we've got a few few questions here. Um, I'll start with James Fleck, if I may. He says, similar predictions of job disruptions were made in the early 1980s. It did not materialize as anticipated. Uh, is there something different about today that makes these tools uh, more important and more useful? Well, predictions of job loss from technology are, you know, have been coming, have, they're centuries old. You know, Luddites, Ned Ludd and the, um, the mills of uh, the Midlands were, I don't know, that was 18th century or perhaps 19th, but um, I'm skeptical of predictions of job disruption, uh, job, um, job loss, but I, I think it's obvious that there's job disruption. There's already changes. Um, the Industrial Revolution created a lot of new jobs, but it was an extremely hard time for workers for 30 or 40 years, maybe more, maybe 60 years, and that's well documented. I think the amount of technological change that we are seeing now is already producing a huge amount of job disruption. And I think this this is uh, a bit different. There are a lot of things going on now. There's the huge acceleration of digital technologies. There's climate change. So I do think that we are at a period akin to the industrial revolution where we will have a lot of job disruption. I don't know whether it will be lack of jobs. At the moment, it doesn't look like lack of jobs. It looks like just a time of change. Okay. Maury, you said you didn't want to dwell at length on skills, competencies, qualifications, and occupation, but I think it would help just a little bit if you could spend 30 seconds picking those four words apart. Uh, well, a skill is something, you know, is a discrete uh, ability that you have you know, something that you can do, sometimes something that you know. A competency is usually a group of skills that allow you to do something, some set of tasks, like I'm a IT manager, um, well, I, you know, database management or, or things like that might be a competency. An occupation is a job, which often requires a set of competencies. Maybe if it's a simple job, it requires one. And a qualification, one of my other roles is I'm on the board of PeopleCert, which is a global certification testing firm. And in that world, um, we talk about qualifications as a specific, um, a specific thing that you're tested for or rated on uh, that you can then have a certificate for that says, yes, I have the qualification to be able to do this thing. Okay. We've got a comment here from Ann Punter, and this is a line I might be pushing a little bit about the usefulness of this, Maury, uh, but I think Ann has a good comment to start us off. I'm a director of governors for schools, and we are trying to design a skills taxonomy for recording skills developed in a governor, trustee, board context for people to take this back into their companies to feed into their career development. Could we learn from you? Well, um, 
from us. I would say we're not in the business of creating skills taxonomies. We're in the business of enabling people who create skills taxonomies. So if, if this taxonomy that you were just describing were created, we hope that our current tech or some future version of it, which will become increasingly easy to use, could be used to manipulate that in ways that are interesting for you. I'll be candid at the moment for, let's say it's a school district, a relatively small entity, um, the, the cost of using our technology is, you, you would need somebody who either knows how to do it uh, or, or can pay us to do it, but it will become simpler over time. I think, but this area that we're talking about, you know, looking at other taxonomies, yes, that can help. I mean, look around for what's out there and, and try to learn from that. Okay. Uh, John Knights is curious, do you include behaviors and values in skills? And if so, how can AI be used to identify and embed these skills, behaviors and values? Yes, is the answer. I mean, we've taken the approach that we call any uh, characteristic that a human could have that relates to performance on a job or in education as a skill. That's, uh, that runs into the problem that a lot of the taxonomies try to solve, which is that we lump a lot of other things in with skills. Uh, but, uh, and, and you know, you need to distinguish these things. But we think that the AI can draw the distinction. So values, you can you can describe a value, and you and the AI can recognize that, and then the AI can look at a job whether it requires that. So you could have in your taxonomy that it requires a value. You can put it in a target that can be easily recognized, and you can recognize whether a particular training course is good at teaching that value. So. The answer is yes, we are trying to solve that problem. It's a hard problem. And some people would say you need to do, you, you can't just see the connections with AI. A human needs to say it's about values. You need it, uh, but, um, but you can make progress. Okay. Ian Harris uh, is curious. Uh, I have grappled with the search for skills for several decades. My view, despite such searching, is that finding talent is more important than skills. To some extent, it's the very problem you start with, changing skills needs that makes me keen to find malleable talent. And do we have tools to help identify those with malleable talent? Um, that's, I mean, it's related to the previous question a little bit. You know, some of these things that we would call talent are soft skills, but I don't think we're yet at the level where AI can recognize who's a talented individual or not. Um, there are some, so there's a lot of hard problems in this skills search space. And one of them, for example, is what level is particular content at? And one of the things that I'm proudest about in our tech is we now have an early implementation of tech that can say whether a course is introductory or advanced. And sometimes you can have an introductory course about a complicated skill, and that's pretty hard to recognize. That's a hard thing to do with AI, but we we started to be able to do it. Um, I think uh, recognizing talent is one that 
um, machine learning techniques will help with over time, but uh, for the time being, it remains mostly a human task. Um, a regular uh, listener, viewer, Lasse Instaford Ausfak, uh, is just wanted to share a tiny anecdote regarding the need for good skills taxonomies. He says, a quiz was done for my 30th birthday. One question was, what does Lasse actually do for work? Zero points were awarded for any of the answers. Not even my answer was found to be good enough. So uh, kind of an interesting, which leads, I think, on to uh, a related point to all of these so far. And James Fleck again, how does the capability to learn and adapt get accounted for? How does, well, I, I mean, I, I take the question and, and Thanks, Jamie, for the question. Jamie's on our advisory board, and I'm pleased that he's joined the, the conversation. Um, he, uh, I take the question to be people's skills um, and their knowledge changes over time. How, how can we account for that? I think that's one of the places where digital technologies, including AI, have a big advantage because you can have a system that will update dynamically and computers are just fast. And so it can be efficient for computers to be updated with changing skills where doing a human, parsing that um, by humans can be difficult. And I should interject here, I, I keep referring to the capabilities of AI. I'm not, I don't have the Silicon Valley AI triumphalist um, mentality that AI is better, machines are better, humans are worse. Uh, I, I see a big role for humans in everything we do, and I like to think that AI can improve our ability to do things for humans um, and, and provide us tools that allow us to do things better. Hmm. Okay. Um, you, you said at one point, uh, you know, that if on the, on the poll that the audience probably didn't see these as much because they weren't involved in HR. Um, given a number of views about HR, the classic human remains comment, and, and the fact that some of this is really quite daunting, you look at these enormous taxonomies, as I have actually from Nesta and what have you, and you go, well, what am I supposed to do with this as somebody who's running even a fairly sizable business? Is this not something really at the national uh, demographic type level? Yeah, I agree. I mean, they are very daunting and that is a big motivator of what we're doing. I mean, the, the desire to standardize is because of exactly that. These things are daunting and we think we have to do this at the national level to have something that everybody could use. The things that are that even the biggest standardized ones like ONET or ESCO don't capture the granularity that a lot of businesses have. And, and it, what we're working on is a way to try to get through that and to move it from being daunting to moving it uh, to something that uses language that humans use so that you don't have to engage with the skills taxonomy. You can engage, taking my slide about the, the two pictures of the same guy, one talking in human language, one talking in taxonomy language. We'd like to work towards flexible taxonomies where you can just talk in human language. But I don't think taxonomies are going to go away. We're helping one company in the natural resources industry where they want to help customers hire for um, energy projects. 
with specific requirements. And so you need some way of defining those requirements. Um, they want to categorize them. And so, but we can work with their categorization rather than um, some, you know, some uh, widely dispersed taxonomy. So it's a very hard balance, Michael. I, I, the, your question gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, Bob McDowell, can AI advise on what skills not to pursue because such skills are looking ex increasingly to be redundant? Um, yes, although I would say I'm not sure that's an AI problem so much as a big data problem. You know, there are very good studies. Burning Glass is the company that has the most data about this, but job market data about what skills are increasing and what skills are decreasing. If you go to ONET, uh, they, the, the Department of Labor sponsored site that runs the ONET skills taxonomy has a lot of information about which skills are in demand as well. So I think big data has a lot to say about that problem. Um, AI perhaps a little less so. I mean, AI might be more than one needs for, for that problem. Okay. Uh, Hugh Purser is curious, in several industries, courses plus certification, you know, the two together, are compulsory requirements for employment. Many appear to be box-ticking exercises, yet they define skills. Um, could you comment? And I might tag on to that if I may. I mean, isn't this really something that the education sector should be doing? I guess you'll say, well, that's kind of where EdCast is, but it does seem to be coming out of, you know, Nesta and the Department of Labor. And I wonder how much this is an education issue. Uh, I have, I could talk about this question for a while. It's a very good question. Um, I, I should just, as I mentioned, I'm on the director of, I'm a director of PeopleSearch. So we are in the business of selling testing for qualifications. So I have a, a slight bias that that is useful in, in lots of places. Um, but I, I agree with the problem of box ticking, ticking. I have a broader perspective that our education system is too narrowly, uh, you know, to get a job, you want to have a certain type of education. It's fairly linear. Job mobility, as I said earlier in response to Jamie's question in particular, is, is increasing. And I think we need the ability to teach flexibly and allow people to move. And so there's two sides of the coin uh, with qualifications there. I think we don't want to be too fixed about what everybody has to study. But on the other hand, uh, narrowly tailored qualifications can be a good way of allowing people to demonstrate what they know when jobs are shifting fast, and particularly where it's remote. With increasingly increasing remote work with the internet, fluidity, it's easier to judge people if you can judge them according to standard qualifications. Hmm. I think the answer to this one is very short, but just in case, Lhasa again, is the scope limited to English and the Western uh, sphere of life, or would this functionality aim to be language and culture agnostic? The answer is the latter. It's, I, I mean, um, I love languages. I speak eight or nine of them, and um, I want to go and and lang and PeopleSearch has a big languages teaching business. Um, at the moment, our work is focused uh, in the first instance in English because we're developing the tech, but the tech, it, it, it works, um, the, the tech, the, the open source tech would work fine with foreign language skills. Okay. Um, Ian Gordon, uh, 
do you have a way of characterizing environments that generate or develop particular skills, competencies, uh, and uh, learning capacities as a relevant part of the back their background, as well as something to be cultivated? I mean, I think that's quite an interesting question. That you know, is there effectively some type of uh, sector? I don't know, call, call it IT versus accountancy, you know, versus agriculture, where you're seeing and you can measure uh, the changing and development of, of skills. I'm not sure I I fully get the question. So are you saying, is there a sector we're testing it in or do we have a framework for mapping? Do you have a framework? I think it's measuring this, you know, characterizing these environments. So this environment is moving not not just fast, but very developed. This this environment, say, chaotic or inchoate. I mean, a good example in the UK would be, you know, the construction industry, which has long had training boards, et cetera, and yet is seen to be not particularly professional versus maybe a rapidly evolving area like IT. The answer is, I, I, well, I think those things exist. That is not something on which LearnerShape is focusing. This is a very complex set of problems. So as I said earlier, we're not, we're focusing on processing tech, uh, taxonomies rather than creating them. Um, there's a big piece of this problem, which is about assessment, which we also don't do. And I think measuring the measurement problem that you said is, um, is another piece which we haven't focused on. My encounter with that is anecdotal. As I said earlier, for example, you know, in IT skills, there's a lot of good work in this area. Financial services, although it's a very big industry, there's much less of it. Construction, I agree with you, Michael, there's a lot of good stuff. So I think stuff is out there. It's not something that we focused on. Okay. Well, a small anecdote for me is I, I was once running a large R&D facility and we did a whole bunch of psychometric training. And then this immediately, and given that community, was put into a database and this immediately became instantiated as, as uh, you know, almost locked, uh, you know, completely geologically down that these were the skills that were needed. Um, so Bob McDowell says here, how valuable is skills optimization for furthering and focusing the direction and efficiency of R&D to which I would tag on? Or is it in danger of actually locking down too hard on skills that might be relevant uh, being excluded? Well, I agree with, I think I, I agree and agree. It's, I think there's a big opportunity to optimize R&D by having the right skills available and there's a big risk by locking it down so what we're trying to solve for that problem we're trying to say you can find the relevant skills uh, but you don't have to do it with a fixed taxonomy okay and a final question for you maury um I, I think it was really noble of you to you know to point out there's edcast out there and it might even be better than us and you can buy it but we're open source and you know, we're, we're going down that long road and obviously I have a, a propensity towards open source. So I'm sympathetic to that argument. But as I go there to this uh, site, which is being developed, uh, and let's say I go as a medium-sized business, not some kind of mega researcher in this space, but I'd like to get something practical out of it. Um, what would I see on, the, on, on your GitHub that I could use? And what would be like a very small baby step I could take? Should I take a bunch of CVs and run them through it. What, what do you think I should be doing? Well, the first step on the GitHub is read the README file, um, which tells 
that was uh, on the slide was an extract from that and it tells you what we can do. Like a lot of GitHub projects, this is code. Um, and so it's, you need somebody who knows how to use SQL databases, et cetera, to implement it. But uh, if you have that, uh, the baby step would be to build your own taxonomy, for example, and point it at a set of your content. We have some, we have the ability on, on the site to scrape, uh, to, to scrape content out of a database. We have the ability to build a taxonomy and test it out, you know, see how it works. Um, and there's a number of uh, uh, Jupyter Notebooks on the site, which walk you through these examples. So there's code, not just the underlying uh, library, but there's code with concrete implementations that, and that's open source as well. So you can, you can take that in and play with it. And that's what I would recommend. And for more, for more complex applications, and that's what we, that's our business. Um, we help people modify what we've done, but, and we're always happy to talk with people about, you know, what can be done with our open source versus modification of it. And if I was going to do sort of a trial like that, is there a minimum number? At what point is it, you know, it's just a demo as opposed to, do I need 300 kind of CVs to get a, an answer that starts to show me things I didn't expect? I think that's about right. I mean, I think smaller than that, you can probably figure it out yourself by just looking through, you know, sitting down in an afternoon and looking through the data. It, mm -hmm. I would say some thousands of data points would be useful, would be necessary to make it uh, worth the time of building an implementation using our tech. Okay. Maury, uh, sadly, as ever, we've come to the end. And if I may, I'm going to give three quick rounds of thanks. And firstly, uh, very much to our sponsors. It is, as uh, as Maury said, you know, quite openly, it is a bit daunting, this field. As I said, it's a bit complex. Uh, uh, but it is moving fast in very interesting and probably very important ways. As we see increasing automation and all sorts of things, we'll be seeing increasing automation in decision-making about skills, competencies, and hiring, uh, and that will drive this field even faster, I suspect. Um, but secondly, I'd like to thank, if I could, the audience. You've been very vibrant today on, an, on a topic which I was afraid uh, might be too daunting for you, but clearly not. That's the great thing about the FS Club community. Uh, but mostly, if I can, um, I'd like to thank uh, you, Maury. Uh, it's really tough, and I know it's an early stage, and it's always difficult there. You know, show something practical versus, hey, we're going down a road here. Um, and I enjoyed it, and I think uh, I would encourage people to go and have a play with that software if you have got a, a few hundred uh, of a data set, just to see what it does. And I'm hoping we'll have Maury back uh, quite soon next year or something, showing us slightly harder and more practical examples as, as a learner shape evolves and matures. And we really do appreciate you uh, being here and, and chatting to us. Folks on FS Club, uh, lots of things coming up. Just a reminder, though, that tomorrow, if you care about the long term of finance, please see Con Keating on uh, on his session uh, tomorrow afternoon on accounting standards and discount rates. But Maury, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause, but as I think you know as a regular uh, speaker here, I do have my Brian Karmic clapper, and I will provide airsats applause for what was a really really interesting session, and I do look forward to learning more. Thank you so much. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity.